All right, Revelation chapter 11. I have a question that somewhat goes with the lesson tonight, a little bit later in the lesson, but um, it might not sound like it at first. What is your favorite holiday and why? What is your favorite holiday and why? All right, since you didn't raise your hand, Christmas, why? Because it's Jesus' birthday. birthday. Very good. Jenna? Christmas. Christmas? Why? Because we get to open presents. There it is. I like it. Awesome. She is honest. <laughs> He's trying to be spiritual here. Uh, who else? Who else? Let's do some more. Rodney. New Year's. New Year's. Why? Because the last year is finally over. Last year is finally over. Awesome. All right. What else? Who do we got? Ellie. What? Halloween. Why? Because you get a lot of candy and rot your teeth out more so you can lose the whole first row. I'm just kidding. She's got her two front teeth out. It's awesome. Yes, Richard. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Why? Because I get all the Christmas food and I don't have to buy anything for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Casey. St. Patrick's Day. Why? It's your anniversary. Awesome. Very good. Marshall. Fourth of July. Why? Because you get to light fireworks and light people on fire. Yes, Tesla. Fourth of July. Same reason? You get to light your brother on fire? Awesome. Nate? Ignore that kid. Aaron? Yeah, he is ripping my sin. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> He's not shy. <laughs> Sorry, all those watching online, all two of you. Aaron. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, why? Because I get to eat the turkey. <laughs> if you still need a turkey, we still have a few turkeys. <laughs> a little uh, promo here. <laughs> Tacey. Christmas, because it's about Jesus. All right, Violet. Mother's and Father's Day. Ooh, I like it. Look at that. Good job, David and Carmen. Awesome. Why? Because you like planning things for your parents. Mia? My birthday. My birthday? Thank you. My birthday. No, your birthday. Jocelyn? Galentine's Day? I've never heard of Galentine's Day. There's a holiday. There's a holiday for everything. Obviously. Is that what you're going to say, David? Galentine's Day? Galentine's Day? Christmas because it's cold? Possibly. I've gotten like twice. Oh, <laughs> nice. My grandparents got married on April Fool's. Oh, yeah. The joke was always on my grandma. Emery. April Fool's to prank your parents. Awesome. All right, we'll do two more. Jarrett. Christmas. Why? That where Jesus was born. Yes. Good job. Ella. Christmas? Because you like to give your daddy presents? No. <laughs> no? Not at all? All right. All right. Last one, Ethan. Christmas? All right. Standard holiday for Christmas. Easter's your second favorite. All right. There, there's a reason for that later in the message, but 
It sounds like a random question, but it's not. All right, Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Again, as we looked at last week or last time that we met on Wednesday, Revelation 10 and 11 are really kind of a parenthesis, a pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments. We'll kind of introduce the seventh trumpet tonight, but we won't really dive into that um, really for a few more weeks probably. But in verse number one, go ahead and follow along if you would. The Bible says, and there was given me, again, John talking about the visions that he had, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angels stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. This was a measuring stick, kind of a modern day yardstick, so to speak. Measure the temple of God and the altar and them which worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, so the outer court, leave out, don't measure it. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, the two witnesses in Revelation. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, which is twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. I think that should be the goal for some of you. For the next three and a half years, just clothe yourself in sackcloth. Michael's back there shaking his head, no, he doesn't want to do that. Um, I'm not suggesting it, but that would be an interesting wardrobe, you know, for the next three and a half years. Anyway, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. So their names are not necessarily mentioned. Um, we have some idea of who they might be. Uh, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And if any man will hurt them, verse number five, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Now, this is pretty interesting. No one is allowed to do harm, basically because God says that no one's allowed to do them harm. And if anyone tries to do them harm, all these guys have to do, these witnesses, just speak and fire comes out of their mouth. I mean, wouldn't that, isn't that like the greatest superpower super ever? Like you just like speak, fire comes out of your mouth and boom, you're dead, you're fried. Um, you can light a bunch of fireworks, Marshall, that way. Like that'd be, that'd be pretty cool. What? Only if someone is against you though. Only, only if someone's against you. All right, let's continue on. So uh, let's reverse number five again. If any man hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. So if anyone tries to do them harm, they're actually going to die themselves. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the, in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony... The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. And we'll be talking about the beast in the weeks to come. And shall overcome them and kill them. So finally, after these 1260 days, these three and a half years, their time on earth is done. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street. This is kind of a, just imagine this picture. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great cities, talking about Jerusalem, we believe, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people, of the kindreds and tongues and nations, shall see their dead bodies three and a half days. I mean, just imagine that. Having a dead body or two dead bodies just sitting, just sitting in the street for three and a half days for all people to see. I mean, just try to imagine that sight, if you would. That's kind of what's going to happen here. Verse number 10, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice. Interesting. They're going to rejoice because these two are dead over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt 
on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God, this is pretty cool, entered into them and they stood up on their feet. You know, it's probably not going to be like a, you know, like a zombie thing where they're like, I don't know, but that's how my mind works sometimes. Anyway, um, I just lost my place. Uh, they sit upon, yeah, 11, thank you. <laughs> I was in the uh, zombie land. Uh, and after three and a half days, the spirit of life, God entered into them, and they sit upon their feet in great fear, which obviously fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So the enemies actually saw them rising up into heaven. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and the earthquake were slain of the men. Seven thousand, seven thousand people died here on that day. And the remnant were frightened and gave God or gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So again, these are not everything that John gives us in Revelation is necessarily chronological in the sense of it's going to happen one upon another. It's more of a, as I've said before, kind of an artistic book in nature. But right here in the middle, before he continues with the ju judgments, he kind of takes a pause and tells us some other things that are going to happen during this time. And again, I, I want you to remember this. It's not in your notes. I think I've said it before. But one of the main purposes of Revelation is to compel action in the present. There are so many practical applications that we as Christians can apply. At the very end of the message today, what I'm going to do is kind of walk back very, very quickly through this chapter and give you just a rundown of applicable things for Christians for us tonight. And really the, the, the case is, is, is for us all that, that the application, yes, it was for first century Christians that John was writing to, but the letter is still for us today that it should compel us to action, to realize that there is still a world that needs a savior. And really we shouldn't wish anything like this on any of our enemies, no matter how much you hate them. It's going to be bad, and we've talked about how bad it's going to be, and really, all the bad stuff that we've talked about, it's going to get far worse as we continue on in chapter 12 going forward. But what we see here, again, is God's sovereignty on full display, and really, that's one of the overriding themes in the book of Revelation, that God is sovereign, that God is in control. And again, the thing that I noticed just in my study today as I was kind of walking through it, the thing that I noticed again is that, you know, even in verse number five, we'll get there. No one is allowed to hurt these two witnesses. Why? Because God basically said, you can't hurt them. They're mine. I've chosen them. I've elected them. You can't do them any harm. And finally, after their mission was completed, that's when God allowed hurt or harm or death to fall upon them. So again, we have to understand that everything, everything, everything is still under the sovereign hand of our almighty creator and savior, Jesus Christ. But tonight specifically, we're talking about these two witnesses and we'll, we'll ponder the question of who these two witnesses are. But really in every generation, in every century of Christianity, there have been witnesses for Jesus Christ. And a lot of Christians today and in the years past have, have often wondered where is God when things go wrong? Or where is God when injustice happens? Where is God when people die for crimes that they did not commit? And really talking more in a Christian realm, where is God when people of faith, Christians, have been murdered and martyred for their faith? What we see in Revelation is that God will evoke 
vengeance upon mankind. But we have to understand it's always in his time. It's not in our time. I came across just a quick story I want to share with you about a missionary couple, some Anabaptists back in the early 16th century. Their names were Michael and Margaretha Sattler. They were devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and their lives were cut short by martyrdom in their 20s. I mean, just imagine that. Their life had just started. And the record of their death has been providentially, providentially preserved as a testimony of their faithfulness. Listen to this. The torture, a prelude to execution, began at the marketplace where a piece was cut from Sattler's tongue. Pieces of flesh were torn from his body twice with red-hot tongs. He was then forged to a cart. On the way to the scene of execution, execution, the tongs were applied five more times. In the marketplace and at the side of the execution, still able to speak somehow, the unshakable settler prayed for his persecutors. After being bound to a ladder with ropes and pushed into the fire, he admonished the people, the judges, the mayor, to repent and be converted. Just let's stop right there. Imagine what he's already gone through, and he's about to die, and what is he praying for? For them to get saved. And really, just let's stop right there and focus on ourselves. You know, someone cuts us off and, man, you should just die. You know, we go crazy about things like that. I'm, I'm going way overboard sometimes. Or, you know, there's things that happen in our country that we don't like and oh, God just needs to blow them all up. What kind of attitude is that? Honestly, I, I, I've been guilty of that myself. We all have. But stories like this, it really just, man, it, it convicts me. To realize that here's someone that is really willing to give their life for Jesus Christ. And even moments from death, they're still praying for people to be saved. It should convict us and also should put us to shame in some ways that as we're here on Wednesday nights just praying, it's not just something coming out of our mouths. Hopefully it's something that we're constantly doing, praying for people to be saved, for people to get right with God. Let me continue in, in this story. He's praying for them to repent, to be converted. Then he prayed, Almighty, eternal God, thou art the way and the truth, because I have not been shown to be in error. What he's saying is that I've never seen you fail me in the past, and I'm pretty sure you're not going to fail me in the future. I will, with thy help to this day, testify to the truth and seal it with my own blood. As soon as the ropes on his wrist were burned, Sattler raised the two forefingers of his hands giving the promised signal to the brethren that a martyr's death was bearable. Then the assembled crowd heard coming from his seared lips, Father, I commit my spirit into thy hands. Three others were executed after every attempt to secure a recantation from Sattler's faithful wife. It also failed. She was drowned eight days later in the Neckar. Just an amazing story thinking of what they went through for their faith. And the reason I read that, I came across that in some of my studies, but the reason I read that is because they were faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. And it's very easy to think, well, God, when are you going to enact vengeance upon their deaths? When, when is something going to, to take place? Again, we have to understand that everything happens in God's time, according to his purpose, according to his plan. And that's just a little precursor. That's a little bit about what my next series is on Sunday morning. And I'm really excited about it. We're going to be studying the book of Habakkuk. The title is When God Does It. And the very first message, I'm almost done with it, 
It's when God doesn't make sense. And honestly, whether, whether you want to admit it or not, I know everyone is not just a super spiritual being in here. There have been times in all of our lives where God just does not flat out make sense, right? Am I right? Yes. And I really encourage you to, to be here for that. We'll probably start that next week or probably a week early uh, just because I'm really ready to go f- with it. But, you know, that's kind of what is going on, I'm sure, in the minds of those people in the 16th century that knew the settlers and others that heard of the news. God, this doesn't make sense. Why would you kill people that are serving you that are trying to tell other people about you? There's a reason for everything, and sometimes we just don't understand. But the very first thing I want to look at in this lesson tonight is this. God's plan continues despite the opposition. You see, that's what we have to understand. The plan of God has been since the beginning of time, and it's going to continue no matter if there's opposition or not. In the first two verses here in Revelation chapter 11, John, he's already been recommissioned, if you remember back at the end of chapter 10. Remember he had the first commission when Jesus ascended up to heaven. He was there with many of the disciples and now he has been recommissioned when he was told to take that scroll to eat it, to go and preach really in verse number 11 of chapter 10 to to prophesy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Basically what John has been told is what John is then telling us to then continue preaching God, preaching the gospel, telling the lost and dying world about Jesus Christ. So John has been recommissioned, and now in verse number one, John is giving a measuring read. It's equivalent to a modern-day yardstick, so to speak. And John's measurement really is symbolic. He is told to, as it says here, to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Verse number two, but the court which is without the temple, don't measure it. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall tread underfoot, 40 and two months, or three and a half years. Now, this measurement is symbolic. To measure something means to claim it for yourself. This is meaning that God is, again, in charge, in control, and it gives the idea of both ownership and protection here. And it's a note of importance, just quickly, but the Antichrist is about to break his agreement with Israel. Because if you remember early on in our study, I talked about the Antichrist had made an agreement with Israel for that first three and a half years of the tribulation, kind of ushering in peace. But at this time, he's about to break that peace treaty. And he's about to do horrific things on the earth. So up until this point, there has been peace with the Antichrist and the Israelites. And all the prayers of peace in the Middle East have finally taken place during this time. But in verse number two, again, he is told to leave out the outer court. The outer court represents the control of Jerusalem and Israel by Gentiles during the last half of the tribulation. Now, the times of the Gentiles began in 606 BC when Babylon began to devastate Judah and Jerusalem. And it's going to continue until Jesus Christ returns to deliver this holy city. We find that in Zechariah chapter 14. There's a lot of historical things that I'm going to try to throw at you quickly tonight. And God is basically telling John to throw them out, to cast them out, because They are not part of God's elect, God's chosen. They are wicked. They are abominable creatures. They they have deficit. They they have done horrible acts. And God is saying, don't count them in the number of, of the redeemed, of the chosen, the ones that I'm going to come back to redeem. And that's kind of the significance here. And this is, again, a reminder that man and his worship are always judged by God's standards. 
Regardless of what man thinks, the only one that counts is not what I think of you, what your wife thinks of you, what your husband thinks of you, what your parents thinks of you. The only thing that matters in life is what God thinks of you. And are you pleasing to him? God is the only one that can judge and standard of worship in our lives. And I think a great question to ponder for us tonight is this. If Jesus showed up in bodily form, would our current worship change? I just want you to think about that for a second. If Jesus showed up in bodily form, would our current worship change? Because some people come to church and really, they don't come for the right reasons. They don't really come to truly worship. But what if Jesus were literally sitting here? Now, we have his presence and the Holy Spirit within this place, but what if Jesus were really here in physical form? Would our worship change? What would you, what would you begin to do that maybe you're currently not doing? It's just a thought to consider. But the reality is Jesus is here with us because the Holy Spirit is present. And I think sometimes we forget that, right? We go through life without the realization that the Holy Spirit, Jesus, is with us. And our worship should always be constant, whether he's here or not. It's kind of like you think about it in the standpoint of an illustration of, of kids. And, and I, th I think about myself many times over. You know, Many times as I got older, my sisters, you know, we were able to kind of watch ourselves. You know, mom and dad were gone. They would tell us not to do certain things. And as soon as we heard that car come back in the driveway, you know what we did? Turn the TV off really quick. But, you know, back in those days, you can kind of like feel the TV and like, oh, it's still kind of hot, still kind of warm. Pretty sure you were just having the TV on. You know, today it's not that big of a deal. But we, the things that we were supposed to do, a lot of times we didn't do. And then we try to rush and hide or, you know, I want you to bed at a certain time. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, an hour past that. And we're rushing up in bed and like, oh, yeah, yeah, covers over us. <laughs> yeah, I'm sleeping. <laughs> but I think of the same thing, you know, I think we, we kind of maybe try to pull the wool over God's eyes in some ways. You know, the point I'm trying to make is with this that, you know, God is the one that judges our worship and our worship for him should always be constant. But sometimes it's not. So let's continue on. Verse number three. Next thing we see is this. God has promised to complete our ministry. God has promised to complete our ministry. Now, God's place in his people are the objects of intense opposition, as we've already seen up until this point. However, at the same time, God is about to raise up two witnesses who are going to come and proclaim his word and display his power. And these two witnesses we've already seen the other remnant, but we've already seen 144,000 that were raised up earlier in, the, in Revelation. So these two witnesses are going to work together with the 144,000 to evangelize the world as we know it and try to witness during all of the events that have already taken place up until this time. So it's significant to understand. Now, before I talk about who I think that these might be, let's just talk about some understanding of what the passage gives us. Verse number three, and I will give power unto my two witnesses. So they have supernatural power because it comes from God. And they shall prophesy uh, 1,203 score days, 1,260 days, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. Verse number four, these are the two olive trees, kind of a metaphorical reference, and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Olive trees stand for God's people in both the Old and New Testaments, and lampstands signify that God will provide spiritual illumination through these witnesses. 
And really, both of these are, in, in symbolical ways, understanding of fruit and light before God. Verse number five, we continue. And if any man will hurt them, we've already referenced this, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. So they have the ability, if someone's coming to hurt them, all of a sudden I'm going to speak, kind of like I think of a dragon, like they speak, and then fire comes out of their mouth, and then that person that tried to do them harm is actually in harm and actually is going to be killed. As it says, if any man will hurt them, he must then in this manner be killed. So they have divine protection in a sense. What God is showing John here is that, you know, I got their backs. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Verse number six, we continue. These have power to shut heaven. I mean, again, look at the supernatural power that God has given. They have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. So they could withhold the rain if they so chose and have the power over waters to turn them into blood. Basically, let's turn this water into blood, kind of significance of, of the plagues of Egypt and to smite the earth with plagues as often as, as they will. Really, a lot of things that we're seeing in Revelation, these end time judgments, are some of the things that we saw earlier in the Old Testament time. So it's kind of like coming full circle with God's judgment, but in a greater, more destructive way. <coughs> so the question before we move on, who are these two witnesses? And there's a lot of speculation as to who these two are. You know, I, I did some just brief research on who some people think, and I think one of the first sites that I came across was this, Joseph and Hyman Smith. That's who they are. Anybody know who that is? Yeah, it's the Mormons. So it's uh, the two Mormon witnesses. That's who they believe. That's who the, the Mormon church believes it is. It's Joseph and Hyman Smith. Joseph is the one that, that founded the religion, his brother Hyman. So anyway, I just thought that was funny. So some people think it's that, but there's numerous suggestions throughout the ages. I don't believe it's Joseph and Hyman. I just want to understand that. But there really are two prominent suggestions, either Elijah and Enoch, 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 whatever you want to say, or Elijah and Moses. Now, there's reasons for both of these. So the reasons for Elijah and Enoch are this. These were the only two men in history that never died. So many believe because they never died, it's probably very good chance it could be those two individuals. But the greater suggestion or theory out there by many commentaries, many theologians, is the belief of Elijah and, anybody know the other one? Moses, Moses yes. And the reason for Elijah and Moses is this. <clears throat> First of all, Matthew 17 references this. These two have already returned to earth once. Did you know that? At Jesus' transfiguration. Study that. It's pretty cool. When Jesus was transfigured, there are uh, Mount, is it? Mount of Olives. Thank you. I was about to say Mount Sinai. Definitely wrong. Um, yeah, exactly. I know. So on the Mount of Olives... In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, Moses and Elijah are present. So that's just one reference. Also, in verse number 6, we just read, let me read it again, just to kind of show you. These have the power to shut heaven that it rain not. Who do you know in Bible history that was able to kind of withhold the rain? Elijah. Elijah. Exactly. In the story there in um, was it 1 Kings 17-ish. I believe I could be wrong on that. But anyway, the story of Elijah withholding the rain from Israel, that it rained not in the days of the prophecy and have the power over water. So who had power over waters to turn into blood? Moses. So again, that's one understanding because of what the verse says. Many people believe that whether it is Elijah and Moses, they have the spirit of Elijah and Moses, whatever. 
But also, another interesting, just quick tidbit, FYI, Elijah, again, never died, but Moses' body was hidden. By who? God. No one knows where Moses' body is because God himself hid it back in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse number six. Why would God hide Moses' body unless he had a purpose for his body? In fact, just another little quick interesting thing, in Jude, verse number nine, there's only one chapter in Jude, but in Jude, verse number nine, both Michael the archangel and Satan are both fighting over Moses' body. Do you know that? It's pretty interesting, pretty cool. Again, I'm not saying that that's who it is, but there is strong suggestion and belief based on scripture to believe that it probably more than likely is Elijah and Moses based on what we know. But again, they have supernatural power because God has given them this power. Let's continue on, verses number seven through 10. What we see here is this, persecution and death will be the result for speaking the truth. Now, we've seen people get banned from Twitter for speaking the truth or Facebook or other things like that. But because they speak the truth, persecution and death will come. Verse number seven, look what it says. And when they shall have finished their testimony, what testimony are they given? Michael, what testimony are they giving in the past three and a half years? The gospel, yeah, they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching the truth of Jesus Christ, right? So once they finish their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them finally after these three and a half years and kill them. So yeah, verse seven begins with the phrase, and when they have finished their testimony and given their evidence, this entire phrase is really worth highlighting in the Bible. These two witnesses will march in the belly of the beasts. And it's more than just the Antichrist talking about here. It's the city of Jerusalem, which is under the reign of the Antichrist. Yet they are immortal until God permits. And throughout church history, we have seen God's faithful witnesses killed for preaching the truth of the gospel. Jim Elliott. Anybody know who Jim Elliott was? Anybody? Yeah, he was a missionary to the Aka Indians in the early 1900s, I think 1920s, 30s, 50s, something like that. I don't know, I can't remember. But he was beheaded. He was eaten alive because of his faith. And then his, his wife went back, I believe the story, is that right? His wife went back and then she witnessed to them and many of them actually got saved. Amazing story. But one thing he said, now this is very interesting, I want you to hear this. He said, remember, you are immortal until your work is done. But don't let the sand of time into the eyes of your vision to reach those who still sit in darkness. They simply must hear. The point he was making is that you're immortal until God is done with you. It's a good thought to consider. Until God is finished with you, you're immortal. So live on mission and do what God is want, want us, wants us to do is basically what he's saying. Don't let the sands of time in your eyes cloud your vision to reach those who are in darkness because they have to hear. And that's why he was willing to give up his life to these Indians who, who ate him, a sickening thing, because he realized that his purpose was greater than just his own life. And in the same way, you and I are immortal until we finish the work that God has set out for us. Here's the key truth. As long as you're alive, God has a plan for you. As long as you're alive, God has a plan for you. And in some way, form, or fashion, you're invincible until that plan is done. Doesn't mean you can't get sick or 
you know, have disease or, you know, mess up your life in some way or form, form or fashion. But, you know, until God is finished with you, he has a purpose. And the, the truth is, kind of what we learn in Job, we shouldn't fear Satan because Satan, kind of like with Job, Satan couldn't touch Job, right? Couldn't kill him. I mean, he could inflict a lot of harm and uh, punishment on his body. But until God said, okay, now you can kill him, which he didn't, Satan couldn't do anything like that. You see, the devil can't do anything without God's permission. And again, that's what I see over and over through Revelation. And that's why we have to understand that this isn't a scary book. It's actually a phenomenal book, and it should give hope for the Christian. After, finally, after these witnesses finish their testimony for God, the beast then comes out of the abyss and makes war against them. And the Antichrist finally is able to kill them, but not until their work is finished because nothing happens apart from God's permission. Verse number eight and nine, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, which also our Lord was crucified. The beast will murder God's prophets and then disgrace them by denying them burial. And John says, again, they're, they're their bodies are here in the city called Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem is likened to Sodom and Egypt. In Scripture, Sodom stands for the flesh, while Egypt stands for the world. And the point is that this great city is dominated by the world system, by the flesh, and by Satan through the beast, through the Antichrist. And in this great city, and it's just an amazing thing, the body of these two witnesses are going to lie in the streets for all the world to see. And again, just imagine how far we've come. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000, 2,000 years ago when John is writing this, imagine the first century Christians thinking like, how's the whole world going to see that? But doesn't it make sense today? Yeah. It makes perfect sense. The whole world is going to see, you think of social media, people with phones and snapping pictures and probably taking selfies and just all kinds of weird things that are going to happen. They're happening today. Verse number 10, the reason I ask, you know, what's your favorite holiday is because really, in some form or fashion, this is a holiday for those that don't believe in God. This is Happy Dead Witnesses Day. That's what it is. Honestly, look what it says in verse number 10. And they that dwell upon the earth shall what? Rejoice. They're going to rejoice over them because they're dead, and they're going to make merry, which means they're going to have parties. And they're going to send gifts one to another. They're commemorating your own holiday. And the holiday is Happy Dead Witnesses Day. Send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. You know, now, just a quick thing. This is remarkably the only mention of rejoicing, I think, up to this point in the book of Revelation. Now, there's other rejoicing that we'll see in heaven, but on earth at this time. And the rejoicing isn't because God has come back. The rejoicing is because these two Christian witnesses are dead. Now, it's just a quick life application for us. It's a sad state when the world rejoices at the death of truth, isn't it? And that's what we're seeing in our own culture, isn't it? That when truth is killed, the world is rejoicing. And celebrating. And let's have parties and let's send gifts because truth is dead. 
Just imagine how much greater it's going to be at the end times. And what we see here is that mankind will hate God so much that only in the killing of his precious servants are they made happy. In fact, John 15, 18, Jesus foreshadows this for us when, when he said that, hey, they hated me, and they're going to hate you even more. <laughs> and basically what this is, it's a satanic Christmas. Pretty, pretty crazy when you think about it. As we continue on, verse number 11, what we see is this. God always honors faithful service. God always honors faithful service. Verse number 11, and after three days, so they're already dead, lying in the streets. Again, I can't imagine the smell, the stench, but people are rejoicing, and I'm sure, I'm sure, knowing what we know even today in the society we live, people are going to be taking selfies, they're going to be taking videos, they're going to be like having a little parade. It's going to be a crazy thing that's going on here. But after three days, three and a half days, the spirit of life is going to come back into them. God is going to revive them. And they're going to stand on their feet. Just imagine that. I mean, that would freak a lot of people out, wouldn't it? I'm sure, you know, Mike works in the funeral home. I'm sure if he's, you know, dressed in a body sometime, all of a sudden life comes into that body. You'd be out of there, right? (laughs) He'd be gone. (laughs) So get that picture in your mind as they're, you know, people are probably just around them, you know, probably even traveling to see, hey, the witnesses are finally dead. Let's rejoice. Let's travel. It's a vacation spot. And all of a sudden, as they're taking a picture or, you know, doing whatever, all of a sudden life comes back into them. Just the terrifying thing that takes place. And great fear falls upon them because they see that. Verse number 12, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. Again, God is telling them, come home. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. Their enemies see them rising into heaven. Pretty, pretty cool sight. And the same hour was there a great earthquake. Now, this earthquake was so great, so violent, that a tenth part of the city fell, was destroyed. And in the earthquake were slain of men, 7,000, 7,000 individuals lost their lives. And the remnant were frightened and gave glory to the God of heaven. You see, vengeance belongs to only one. And who is it? God, the Lord. Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You know, we try to enact vengeance upon people because they've done us wrong, but God will, he will, he will get his. And we see that joy, excitement turns to fear. And after this great voice is heard from heaven, God is telling them to come home because their work is finally finished. Now, up to this point, I think it was back in chapter seven, I believe it was, we saw really the greatest revival in history They were part of that. Those two witnesses were part of the 144,000 that went out into the world and a whole harvest of souls were won to Christ during the first three and a half years of the tribulation because of their witness. Verse 13, this great earthquake occurs. There were some that remained that, that were terrified, but some still gave God glory, which is a good thing. But in verse number 14, basically, turn out the lights, the party's over. That's how I titled this verse. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Again, remember with the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets, it was that mighty angel in heaven saying, Whoa, 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 what is coming? So the second woe, the sixth trumpet judgment, all of it has finally come to a culmination. It's finally all complete. And really, 
as if it hasn't been bad, it's about to get far worse. And then finally, verse number 15, just make quick reference, and we'll get to this in the next lesson. But in the seventh angel sounded, so the seventh trumpet, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And we see this sight in heaven. I just want to close out this chapter, read this verse, and we'll make the application quickly. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God, which we learned of them back in uh, chapter four and five, I believe it was, on their seats, fell on their faces and worshiped God, because they know that the end is about to you know, rapidly come, saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art um, and wast and and art to come because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned and the, and the nations were angry and thy wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. And thou shouldest give reward unto the servants, the prophets and the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroyed the earth. So finally, God, you're going to enact vengeance upon the earth and they're, they're rejoicing and the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in the temple the ark of the testament and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquakes and great hail. Just an amazing sight, which we'll dig into a little bit deeper next week. <laughs> I like how one preacher summed up all of this. He said, the seventh seal brings us to the end. The seventh trumpet brings us to the very end. And the seventh bowl is going to bring us to the very, very end. <laughs> but here's what we see from this passage very quickly. Write this down if you're taking notes. Here's the application for us because... Throughout all of Revelation, there is an application for the church today. And the application is clear, again, that the gospel is for all the world, that we should be witnesses to the earth. And here's what we need to take from the message. Here's what I want you to take, this. What we see in verse number one, for us, our lives are secure. If you're saved. If you're saved, if you're in Christ, your life is secure. Verse 2, we see this. For the Christian, our suffering is expected. You're going to suffer. That's part of life. That's reality. Our task is prophetic. Our lives are secure. Our suffering is expected. Our task is prophetic. Our message is clear. What's our message? To preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to a world that needs to hear it. Verse number four, it referenced, you know, the, the candlestick there uh, where it says uh, the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. For us, here's the message. Our light is unquenchable. I'm going to rapidly go through these and they can throw them up here in just a minute. Next thing, our souls are untouchable. Our power is invincible. Our death will be temporary, meaning that there's something greater waiting for us. Our resurrection will be sure. Our mission will be complete. And finally, what we see at the close of this chapter is that our God will be glorified. So church, church at Eagle Drive, here's my final note for you for this lesson. What I want you to do is fervently pray and continue to pray that God's kingdom come and God's will be done. And while we're doing that, why don't you fearlessly proclaim the gospel to a world that needs to hear it? Remember, the main, one of the main points of Revelation is to compel action in the present. What we see that's going to happen at the end times, the end of the world, it should urge us 
to take the message right now to a world that needs to hear it. You know, and that, it, it's, it's because of this why I want to take missions trips. And I understand not everyone will ever go, and some people won't, and that's fine. But whether you ever go overseas or not is beside the point. My, my encouragement as a pastor to the church is to just be a missionary where you are, to take the message of the gospel to the people that need to hear it the most. And the truth is, the reality is, most of us really aren't missionaries that we need to be. We are not sharing and proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ because we're so worried about our own lives, our own individual lives, what's going on around us, the circumstances of our life. Instead of worrying that, kind of like the, the missionaries I, I mentioned earlier, you know, my life is short, but my mission is clear. And my mission is to proclaim the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And the key truth is this, as we close, though Christians will be persecuted for faithfulness to Christ, God promises to vindicate his people. And he promises that his kingdom will stand forever. Again, Revelation can be a terrifying book when you study it with the wrong perspective. But when you have the right perspective, it should give you hope. It should encourage you. Let's pray.